The Old Testament reading is Psalm 103, 103. And this is the infallible and inerrant word of our God, of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And now let's turn to Romans for our New Testament reading. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans 8, 12 through 17. This is our sermon text today. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand Forever. If we have learned anything in our study of Romans so far, it is uh, the amazing grace that God has given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That uh, because of Christ, because of his uh, atoning work, your sins are forgiven. And because of Christ, you are considered or counted perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And this, of course, is the grace of justification, which is a major theme 
of Romans as we have seen. Justification. It means that as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, the obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ are imputed to you or reckoned to you by God uh, so that it is in the sight of God as though you yourself have never sinned and have lived a life of perfect obedience and righteousness. And on the basis of this imputed righteousness of Christ, God declares you righteous in his eyes. And so uh, Romans 8.1 says there is now uh, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we've learned from Romans, uh, we receive this, gri- this gift, this grace of justification by faith alone. Apart from works, by trusting yourself entirely by faith to Jesus Christ as your Savior, not uh, trusting at all in any good that you do or any works that you bring to God, uh, this grace of justification, this forgiveness of sins, this blessing of a free and gracious salvation is yours by faith. It's a gift. As many of you will know, when Martin Luther uh, studied the book of Romans and when he came to understand that he was justified on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that was counted to him. Um, He said that he felt like he was uh, altogether born again and that he had entered into uh, the gates of paradise that had been uh, flung open for him. And if you too, by faith in Christ, if you have also uh, come to him as your savior, Uh, You, too, have tasted uh, this same joy and freedom of knowing your sins are forgiven, that you are you are covered uh, with the righteousness of Christ. You have come to know what an unspeakable blessing it is to be justified. And in fact, it's such a blessing. This is such a great gift of God. We might ask ourselves, could there be anything greater? Could there be any greater blessing that God has for us? Then this grace of justification. And incredibly, amazingly, the answer is yes. As wonderful as justification is, it is the foundation or the precondition of an even greater gift of God's grace. And that is the gift of adoption. With justification, God, as our judge, he declares us to be righteous, innocent, forgiven, acquitted. But with adoption, God is not just our judge, but he becomes our father who loves us, who cares for us. As God's adopted children, we are loved by our father. He he brings us into this intimate uh, communion with him. Uh, He is a father who who cares for us, who provides for us, he protects us, he guides us. In Christ, we can say that we are every bit as loved by God as much as Jesus himself, the eternal son of God, is loved by God, his father. It's for this reason that the theologian J.I. Packer said, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the father, is a greater And this blessing of adoption, this is the main theme. This is the central thought of these verses that we heard today from Romans chapter 8. Paul says in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption 
as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And as we look at this passage this morning, uh, first, we'll consider this wonderful truth that in Jesus Christ, we are adopted. We have become the sons and daughters of God. And then secondly, we'll consider two things that this truth, this grace of our adoption, two things that this means for us um, in our lives as Christians. So the first lesson is this. As Christians, we are the sons of God. So I'd like for us to hear again verses 12 through 14. So I'll read those verses again, 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, by the way, just to kind of get this out of the way a little bit, I I doubt if there's any misunderstanding here. But just in case, just in case uh, there is, let's clear up all confusion. When uh, Paul addresses uh, the Romans as brothers, when we hear that, uh, in the scripture, he's, he's including men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, when uh, this passage says that we are sons of God, uh, that covers also uh, sons and daughters of God. So uh, just in case there was any uh, misunderstanding on that point. Now, we'll come back to verses 12 and 13 later. But what I want you to see for now is that uh, what Paul says in verses 12 and 13, that uh, we are no longer or we are not debtors to the flesh, but we are to live by the spirit, that by the spirit we are to put to, to death the deeds of the bodies. Uh, these things that Paul says in verses 12 and 13, uh, they are grounded upon or founded upon a truth that Paul uh, declares in verse 14. And that truth is this, is that every single believer in Jesus Christ, uh, by the grace of God, is a child of God. Again, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? What that means is to be indwelt by the Spirit of God so that one is controlled or ruled by God's Spirit. And since, as we have already seen from previous verses, Every single believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Therefore, every believer is controlled or ruled by the Spirit of God. Therefore, every believer is led by the Spirit of God and is a child of God, a son of God. Along those lines, notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There are no exceptions. There are no uh, spiritual orphans in God's family. But as Christians, each and every one of us are equally beloved by God the Father and adopted into his family as his son or daughter. Every believer is a child of God. Uh, We should also add to that only Christians are children of God. That's because only believers in Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God and are therefore led by the Spirit So only those who belong to Christ are truly the children of God and can call God Father. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God is your Father. God is your Father. Paul expands on this in verse 15. Uh, Look at verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
When you were outside of Christ, before you were united to Christ by faith in him, while you were still outside the kingdom of God, you were controlled by what Paul calls here a spirit of slavery. That is, you were in bondage to your sins. We have also seen this in Paul's letter to the Romans, that to be outside of Christ is to be in bondage, slavery to sin. And not only that, but you were in bondage to the condemnation of the law of God that is against sinners. And for that reason, the spirit of slavery is also a spirit of fear. Those who are in bondage to sin and bound to the condemnation of the law of God, for those people, insofar as they think about God and sin and the coming judgment, they are filled with dread because they know they stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. So the spirit of slavery is also a spirit of fear. At our men's fellowship uh, gatherings, we've been uh, working through a very a wonderful, very encouraging book that's all about the fear of God. And one thing that we've learned from that book is that there is a good and proper fear of God. And that is... Uh, When you come to know by faith in Christ, when you come to know God as your father, you come to know or you come to fear God in a a loving, adoring, even joyful way. Uh, You fear him because you apprehend his majesty, his glory, his his power. But you also uh, come to know God as your father, that you are loved by him. And so. The good fear of God is it's not a cowering fear or a terror fear or terror filled dread of what God may do to you. But the right fear of God is the fear of a son towards his father, a son who has both love and reverence for his father. We can call that a filial fear, uh, the the right uh, fear of God, just as a a child fears rightly his, his father. But that's not what Paul is talking about in verse 15 when he talks about the fear of God. Rather, he is talking about that fear of God that is filled with dread and terror. It is the the fear that fills the heart of a sinner who knows that he stands guilty before a just and righteous God who must punish and condemn the sinner for his sin. And that is the spirit of slavery and of fear that rules in the heart of an unbeliever. And Paul says in verse 15, this is not the spirit that God has given you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, as a Christian, you have received a different spirit. That is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. He is the spirit not of slavery and fear, but he is the spirit of adoption. He not only drives out from your hearts, that fear that once filled it, that dread of the condemnation of God uh, in which you were in bondage. He drives that out from your heart, but he also fills your heart with such assurance and confidence of the truth that you have been loved and adopted by God, that this spirit enables you to cry out from the heart to God, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That is the spirit that God has given you as a believer in Christ. And this brings us to one reason why why 
We are so blessed uh, to live after the coming of Christ into the world. Uh, Before Jesus came, uh, the Jewish people, even those who were uh, truly redeemed by the grace of God, uh, generally, in fact, very rarely, if ever, did they address God as Father. And that's not because they were not children of God, but rather it's because the emphasis in the Old Testament revelation was on the majesty, the power, the authority, the greatness of God, and not on his being a loving, caring father to his people who were his children. That that was true, of course, but that was not the stress or the emphasis that was revealed to the saints in the Old Testament. Now, we saw in our reading from the Old Testament, from Psalm 103, that uh, the truth of the fatherhood of God was not completely missing from that revelation, But that truth was overshadowed by the emphasis on the transcendent glory and greatness of God, his majesty. But when Jesus came into the world, he addressed God in his prayers in a way that was completely unique, different from all the other people of the Jews. He regularly called upon God as his father. And remarkably, he even addressed God with this Aramaic term, Abba, Abba. Abba means father, but it conveys a sense of intimacy, of affection. Um, One way to translate it would be dear father. It would be what a a son or a daughter addresses uh, the father whom he or she loves and respects. Dear father, Abba father. And of course, when we consider who Jesus is, it's only right that Jesus should address God in this way. And that's because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the incarnation of the eternally begotten, eternally existing Son of God. And so it is only right and proper that when Jesus came in the flesh as man, as he prayed to his Father, that he should address him as Father. But here's why we are so blessed to live as Christians now after the coming of Christ into the world. When Jesus came into the world, when he ascended into heaven, you know, he he poured out his spirit upon the church. And he gave his spirit in in fullness uh, to the church in a way that the spirit was not given to the people of old. And that spirit that God has given us, that he gives every believer, is the spirit of adoption, the spirit that assures us that we are just as much the children of God as Jesus himself is the son of God. And so we, as believers in Christ, we can address God just like our elder brother Jesus addresses God. We can address him as our father. We can even address him, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, just as Jesus himself did. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, The God who is infinitely holy, the God who is um, absolutely distinct from all that he created, who rules over all things in transcendent glory, the God who is perfect in holiness and righteousness, the God before whom the cherubim shield their faces as they cry out, holy, 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 the God who rules over all things with sovereign power, this God, he is your father. He is your Father in heaven, and you can call him Abba Father. 
Our confession of faith has a wonderful description of how God deals with us as a heavenly father. In, West, in chapter 12 of our confession of faith, it says that we are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. In verse 16, Paul speaks uh, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to assure us of this almost unbelievable truth when we consider the, 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 the greatest of God, this truth that he is our father, that we can address him in that way. It's almost hard to believe, but it's true. And the Holy Spirit assures us and testifies to us of this truth. Uh, look what Paul says in verse 16. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with, with our spirit that we are children of God. He says the spirit bears witness with our spirit. Now, uh, if, if, the spirit is, if the spirit is bearing witness with our spirit, there's a sense in which the spirit is also bearing witness to our spirit. In other words, uh, this verse is not just describing that understanding uh, that we have of ourselves as we, as we consider uh, the fruit, the evidences of God's graces in our life that leads us to an understanding, a kind of assurance that we are truly saved, that we are the children of God. But this verse is saying so much, something much stronger than that. This verse is saying something that really defies description, and that is the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that we are the sons of God. Now, this doesn't mean that the Spirit speaks to us in a voice that we can discern, you know, with our, you know, with our inner hearing. But it does mean that the Spirit immediately impresses upon the heart and the mind of, of every believer that, that he or she is truly a child of God, loved by God. And so our apprehension of this truth, our, our, this, our, our knowledge of this truth, that, that we are truly the sons of God, this is something more than just an abstract understanding with the mind, this doctrine that we are God's children. Rather, it is a truth that we experience or know in a way that we can't fully explain. I know as good Presbyterians, we, we don't like to talk about feelings, um, but this witness bearing of the Holy Spirit is experienced by us as a kind of feeling, not so much an emotion, but a, a deep-seated, deeply felt conviction, confidence, assurance uh, that makes us say, I know, by the grace of God, I know that God is my Father, that I am His child, that I'm loved by Him. And that's the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said this in a sermon about the fatherhood of God. He said, And what is the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father? He says, I cannot tell you, but if you have felt it, you will know it. It is a sweet compound of faith that knows God to be my Father, love that loves Him as my Father, joy that rejoices in Him as my Father, and a confident affection and trustfulness that relies upon Him and casts itself wholly upon him because it knows by the infallible witness of the Holy Spirit that Jehovah, the God of earth and heaven, is the father of my heart. 
And by the same Spirit, we are not only assured that we are children of God, but also, if we are children, we are also heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What does it mean to be an heir of God? Well, first of all, it means this, that as a child of God, your inheritance is that eternal blessedness, that eternal glory that God is preparing in heaven for you. And in this sense, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And this is another astounding truth when we think about it. All that belongs to Christ is the Son of God. Now, we can leave to the side his authority and power and all of that. Christ will always remain God, the Son. But all that belongs to Christ, uh, the eternal uh, blessedness of heaven, uh, the indescribable joys of heaven, uh, the eternal bliss that he has in his communion with God as his Father and with his people, all this, too, is yours. It will be yours in fullness when when Christ returns and brings us into uh, that glory. And so in that sense, you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But to be an heir of God also means this. It also means that God himself is your inheritance. God is your inheritance. In Psalm 73, the, the psalmist describes what was the true treasure of his heart, the delight of his heart, and that was the Lord himself and I'll read verses 25 and 26 from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as a Christian, that describes you. This is, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a believer in Christ, that the treasure of your heart, the delight of your heart, what you long for, most of all is God himself. To be in his presence, to know him. As a Christian, he is your portion forever. He is your treasure. He is your delight. And he will be your inheritance in the life to come. And so you are heirs of God in that sense. And so to be an adopted child of God, this is a stupendous Astounding privilege. And truly, this grace of God is, this grace of adoption is the the highest blessing of the gospel. But with this privilege, with this blessing comes a calling to live as a child of God. And living as a child of God, of course, involves many, many things. And we could do a whole series of sermons on what it means to be a son of God and to live as God's child in this world. But just looking at these verses this morning, we'll focus just on two things. Two things that living as a child of God involves for you and me. First of all, as sons of God, we are called to put to death the sin that is in us. So now we'll go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 12. Uh, Look at verse 12. We read there. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So just to put this in context of the, of the flow of thought and the verses leading up to verse 12, uh, Paul told uh, the Romans that, um, and these are truths that, of course, apply to, to you and me as Christians. He told them that they are not in the flesh, but that they are in the spirit. 
And he said that the spirit of Christ who indwells in you, who is Christ himself who lives in you, uh, this is the spirit that gives life. He is not only the spirit by whom God will raise up your dead body from the grave to give you everlasting life in an immortal body on the day that Christ returns, but he is the spirit who even now has raised you up and made you alive with Christ. He is the spirit who gives you life. You have newness of life, resurrection life, by the Spirit as a believer in Christ. And for that reason, then, as Christians, because we have the Spirit, because we've been made alive with the resurrected Christ, therefore, how can we be debtors to the flesh? How can we devote our lives to live according to our sinful nature? We can't. We are not debtors to the flesh, but we have been purchased, redeemed by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. We've been made alive, therefore, we are debtors to the Spirit. And what that means is we are called by the Spirit's enabling. We are called to pursue righteousness, obedience, faithfulness to the commands of Christ. But let's put this in terms of being children of God, because this is Paul's controlling thought here, that we are sons of God. Because we are sons of God, you and I are called, therefore, to grow in conformity to the family likeness. In other words, we are called to imitate Jesus, who is our elder brother. We are called to imitate him in his love, his righteousness, his service, his worship, his devotion, his humility. And Jesus himself, of course, he bears the family likeness because he is the true image of God the Father. And so we are called to conform to the image of Christ, and therefore, to, to, be make, to be made like him, and we will more and more reflect God himself. That is our calling as the children of God. And that is the work that the Spirit does in us as well. Uh, Paul puts this whole matter in very stark terms in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, the person who lives according to the flesh, this is the person who, who serves himself. He serves his own self-interests. He serves uh, his sinful passions and desires. He is enslaved to sin. What is the outcome of that life? It is death. It is death. And death here is referring not just to physical death, but death is referring to that eternal destruction, that eternal condemnation that all must suffer who die apart from Christ. But Paul says in verse 13, and now he's speaking to us, he's speaking to Christians. He says in verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the alternative to living according to the flesh. It is to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. And the deeds of the body here, without getting into it, basically we can read that as sinful deeds, the deeds of the flesh, any thoughts or words or actions that are sin. We are to put sin to death. That is what you and I must do as the sons of God. This is what we are called to do, is to put death or put to death sin. And what that entails, what that means is, among other things, it means fighting sin and temptation at the moment that it rises up in our hearts. Putting death to sin the moment we recognize it. You are to put sin to death. You're not to give any leeway 
for it to grow in your heart or your life because it will grow to be a killer. Imagine, if you will, uh, you're driving up in the mountains and you see a cute little bear cub that has been abandoned by his mama bear. And uh, against your better judgment, you take him home because he is so cute and cuddly and furry. And you take him home and you play with him and you feed him and you care for him. Uh, But then what happens when that little bear cub grows up to be a full-grown bear? Uh, He's going to be looking at you as his next meal. And it's the same with sin. If you don't put sin to death when it is small, if you don't put sin to death when it is just beginning in your heart, it will grow up and put you to death. That's the way sin operates. Uh, You may be familiar with uh, the famous uh, work by the Puritan John Owen, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, He he begins that work with a kind of extended commentary on this very verse, Romans 8.13. And he has a little kind of poem in that book. And he says, he says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? And those aren't questions. Those are commands. Mortify means to put to death. Mortify, put to death, make it your daily work. Be always at it while, while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Then he says, be killing it. Or be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that's how it works when it comes to sin. It's the law of the jungle. Kill or be killed. But here's your hope. Because you belong to Jesus, because you do have the Spirit of Christ living in you, because the Spirit indwells in you, you can, and by the grace of God, you will put to death the deeds of the body that you may enter into eternal life. And so as the sons of God, we are called to put to death the sin that is within us. Secondly, as sons of God, we are called to suffer with Christ. Let's look at verse 17. Paul says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We can marvel at the grace of God. We should marvel at the grace of God by his grace, by his mercy, not because of anything he saw in us, but because he is a God of love. He made us his children. He redeemed us by the blood of Christ and he makes us his heirs. He gives us all of these precious promises in the word. He promises that we will one day be glorified with Jesus. But, but. He also calls us to suffer to suffer with Jesus, provided we suffer with him. And this isn't a command so much as it is a fact, a truth, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will suffer with him. Now, what does it mean to suffer with Christ? Obviously, it does not mean that you suffer in any way that contributes to uh, your salvation. But what it means is, at least part of what it means is, that the pattern of your life will be the same as that of the life of Jesus himself. And that is first suffering, then glory. When Christ came into the world, he suffered. Before he was exalted as the glorified son of God, he was crucified in shame as what people thought was a pretended Messiah. First suffering, then glory. First the cross, then the crown. 
If we are the adopted sons of God, why should we think that we will have it any different from Christ, the Son of God? That's the pattern of our lives as Christians. First suffering, then glory. But just as Paul elsewhere in the scripture says that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, neither do we suffer as those who have no hope. But your hope is that the future glory that you will share with Christ and whatever exactly that means, that future glory, whatever that means, Paul says that future glory will be so marvelous, so wonderful that it will cause you to forget all the suffering that you endured in this life. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, to, that is to be revealed to us. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, and whatever you suffer in this life, this is the hope that belongs to you as a beloved son or daughter of God. And that is that eternal weight of glory that is waiting for you will far, far outweigh the light and momentary afflictions that you suffer in this life. Let's pray.